Thank you so much. I was sitting there and I was trying to imagine what it would be like for me to go to Ecuador and talk to people in Ecuador. That would be very difficult. I cannot imagine uh, how difficult that would be, as a matter of fact. Uh, maybe I should have got Sherry to introduce him. Maybe that would have been very better. Uh, I, I want to tell you real quick that, um, you know, we look at a camp experience and what it's like in Ecuador. I know what a camp experience is like here in the United States. So uh, we have been to Chaco Springs. We have been to different places, different camps, summer camps, that sort of thing. Um, and, and what is beautiful about a camp is that you go there and you take kids there and they're able to get away from the world for just a moment and they're able to be together and they're able to focus on Christ and they're able to just have the word of God poured into them day after day, and it is so transformational. You have people that come to know Christ through those experiences. You come to the people that, that, that come there, a lot of times they build relationships they wouldn't have had ordinarily because they, some of the walls are broken down between people. You know, Some people go, I go to this school, you go to that school, we don't really know each other, and then we're there on a low ropes course or a high ropes course, and we're doing things together. It draws us together. And uh, to be able to do something like that in Ecuador, uh, whether it's in Ecuador or the United States, I know that it's transformational for the kingdom of God. So we want to encourage those kind of things. We want to encourage the people in Ecuador. Uh, we want to be an encouragement to people around the world. Uh, and, and later on, we're going to take an, uh, an offering for this camp so that we can uh, maybe pour into them, pour into a camp. I mean, oftentimes we're doing stuff around here and about us and, and around us, but I think that it's important for us to pour into people around the world, and we're going to do that today, okay? So we'll do that a little bit later. I do want to continue in our, our study of Judges for just a moment. I'm going to be in Judges chapter 12. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting that I was going to bring this up as an example today. So uh, I don't know if you know this, but I have an accent, okay? Um, I do. It's a, apparently a southern accent. Apparently, it's very strong, okay? Uh, because, and I didn't think that I had a real strong accent, but apparently I do. Uh, I was actually in California. Uh, if any of you ever go to California, they'll tell you that you have an accent, okay? Uh, trust me, they will tell you that. Uh, I was in a group of people. This was for work, and, and they, we had all, people from all around the world, and they were all there in Los Angeles, and we were having this big meeting and all this kind of stuff. And they had to have presenters. We had this little team-building exercise, and each team had to have a presenter. Well, of course, they chose me to be the presenter, and here I am. I'm the one with the strong southern accent. I got up there, and it was, I mean, I was just doing my thing. And the whole time I was speaking, people were, like, giggling and smiling. They would just smile. I don't know what it is about the southern accent, but they just smile at you, like, oh, how sweet, you know. Uh, <laughs> bless your heart, you know. I mean... And, and I, I got done with my little presentation thing, and, and then this guy that's kind of in charge, he's, he's like my boss, and he goes, hey, man, can you do me a favor? Can you just keep talking? I said, what? And he said, your southern accent is, it is awesome, man, and we are loving it. And I said, I don't even have a southern accent. Like, if you were to talk to some of the people that, that I'm around, you would see a southern accent, you know? I need to bring somebody from Ohatchee up in here. And you would see a southern accent. Am I right, Kimberly? Yeah. Hatchy. Yeah. So, uh, but they did. They, they were just so envious of my strong southern accent. I'm like, I'm not even from the south, y'all. I was born in North Carolina. We got north in the name. I'm basically a Yankee. So, yeah, I say that. When I say I'm not from the south and I go, I'm from North Carolina. Everybody goes, what? 
don't you know where North Carolina is? Yeah, I know where North Carolina is. So anyway, but apparently I have a strong southern accent, and today we're going to be talking about uh, how accents actually affected this one particular story in the book of Judges. Um, I want you to know what's going on here. Um, we basically have a situation uh, where uh, the, the victory has been won. We know that Jephthah has, has, uh, has had a victory. God has given him victory. And now we're going to see something that, that happens. I thought about not covering this, but I was like, we don't need to skip over this. This is important, and, and I think that we need to see this. So uh, Jephthah has, has had a victory, right? And you remember the, the crazy thing that he did with the whole, I'm going to sacrifice whatever it is that walks out of my house. I'm going to, you know, my daughter, it, it turns out his daughter is the first thing that, that walked out of his house, and then he had to sacrifice his daughter, and what a crazy thing that was, and why that's in the Bible, and all that kind of stuff, Right? Well, basically, here we are now. Jephthah has had the victory, and, and here we are in chapter 12, and we're going to see some jealousy set in. And I think that jealousy is such a real thing. I think that jealousy is something that controls people. It has such a heavy, heavy influence on people. And I think that sometimes we overlook how strong that influence can be. Sometimes I think that we, we kind of like, yeah, jealousy, yeah, it's not a big deal but it turns out that it can be a very, very big deal. And I think that this particular story points that out. In chapter 12, it says this, beginning in verse 1, Then the people of Ephraim mobilized an army and crossed the Jordan River to Zaphron. They sent a message to Jephthah, Why didn't you call us to help fight against the Ammonites? We're going to burn down your house with you in it. Well, that's sweet, right? So Jephthah has had a victory. Um, he, he's defeated the Ammonites. We saw that. We saw what a great thing that was. Ephraim, believe it or not, so uh, Gilead and Ephraim, they, they actually are descendants of Joseph, so they're kind of like family, all right? And what happens here is they cross over the Jordan into the area uh, where Jephthah is, and they're ticked off. They're angry at Jephthah. They didn't come over and say, good job, Jephthah. We're so proud of you. You're one of us, and we're so proud of you. We're glad that you did this, and oh, we have such compassion on you for what happened with your daughter. Instead, they come over, and they're like, why didn't you call us? Why didn't you call us? If you'd have called us, then we could have been here to celebrate that victory. And what has happened here? Obviously, jealousy's kind of set in. They want to celebrate in the, the spoils of defeating the Ammonites. They want to be able to say, yeah, we were a part of this, man. We, we were ones that, that helped take down the Ammonites, and, and man, we paired up with them. Why didn't you call us so that we could be part of this? We'll see what Jephthah's response here is. Obviously, their motivations are not very good, and Jephthah replied, and by the way, Gideon had some of the, uh, the same problems with the people of Ephraim. Jephthah replied, I summoned you at the beginning of the, our, of the dispute, but you refused to come. You failed to help in our struggle against Ammon. So when I realized you weren't coming, I risked my life and went to battle without you, and the Lord gave me victory over the Ammonites. So why have you come, now come to fight me? So Jephthah goes, check your voicemail, right? Like, I sent you a text message, but you did not respond. You didn't, you didn't call back. You didn't text back. You, you left me on red, and you didn't, didn't do anything in response, right? And there are some, some 20-year-olds and some teenagers going, like, left me on red. I get what that means. So a lot of you adults don't know what that means. But anyway, so you didn't respond. I, I reached out to you guys, and you didn't respond. That's, that's where he was. He's like, look, I did it. 
but you're the problem here, and it's not me. And they're, they're so full of jealousy and rage that you can't even reason with them. I mean, these guys are, are, are like, they're just overwhelmed with the fact that, that, that man, this, this is something that we could have been a part of. Even though this is, this is like family, these guys are so full of jealousy. And, and look at how jealousy can take over. It's like even to the point of we're going to kill Jephthah. We're not just going to kill you. We're going to burn down your house, and you're going to be inside of it. And Jephthah's like, your, your argument is even unfounded. Have you ever, you ever had this conversation with somebody who's full of jealousy or somebody who's full of rage? You can't even talk to them? You know what I'm saying? Like, like they just see things one way, and it doesn't matter if you make sense or you are rational in your argument or whatever. They're so full of rage and anger that it doesn't even matter what you say. Have you ever dealt with that in your life? Have you ever been on the other end of it where maybe you were the one that was unreasonable because you were so full of rage, you were so full of anger that nobody could reason with you? And I want you to see how destructive this is. This is families coming against you. These are tribes of Israel fighting against each other, ready to destroy each other because jealousy has infiltrated. And now that they've let it build up and build up, it's like you can't even reason with them. And Jephthah goes, hey, look, I called, but you didn't answer. I tried, but you didn't respond. He said, so what did I do? He said, I went in without you. I went in without you, knowing that I would be better off if I had you guys alongside of me. You know, there's strength in numbers, so therefore, if you guys would have been with me, then, then perhaps I wouldn't have been as scared. But as a matter of fact, I was scared, and I put my life on the line. I, I, I just put myself out there. I, I stepped off, and I said, you know what? God's called me to do this thing. It doesn't matter who comes alongside me. I'm going to do it anyway. And there's some truth to that, too. There's a little bit of truth that we need to kind of draw out of that, and that is that sometimes when God calls you to something and you want some people to come up and support you and you really want them to be beside you and you want them to say, man, you want them to, to pat you on the back and say, we got your back, don't worry about it. That doesn't always happen. That doesn't always happen. When God calls you to do something, sometimes you got to go and you got to risk your own life if that's required. I know people that, that, that have come to faith in Christ and, and they knew that if they came to faith in Christ, that their family would do away with them. They'd be disowned by their family. You know, when, when, when God calls you to him, when God calls you to do something, sometimes you got to do it on your own. Sometimes you got to say enough is enough. I'm not going to wait on everybody else to, to be right alongside me so that I'll feel a little bit better. I'll feel a little bit more comfortable. I'm just going to do it anyway. We're always looking for for somebody to come alongside of us because we feel like we're not alone in this thing. Let me tell you something. When you do something that God has called you to do, you're not always going to have somebody that's going to have your back. And there are going to be times when even your family doesn't have your back. I know that sounds crazy. And you pray and you ask God and you say, God, you know, convict their hearts, show their hearts what we're supposed to do and bring them alongside of me. But that doesn't always happen. Even your own family sometimes won't have your back. And that's reality. I hate to tell you that, but that is truth. Because we always think the family's going to be there for us no matter what. That's not always the case. That's not always the case. And, and I, this is hitting home for somebody here today. I feel like, you know, you're like, man, God's called me to do this, but I don't necessarily have people on my side that are my family. And I, I just, I feel like I'm supposed to do it anyway. Well, here, we see Jephthah. He said, I risked my life. And I put everything on the line because I feel like God was calling me to. And look what he does here. See, see. These people were coming in, the Ephraimites are coming in, and they're, they're like, they're angry about this thing because they wanted to celebrate in the spoils of having won the victory, right? 
So they're motivated by pride. They're motivated by their own selfish ambition, building themselves up, lifting themselves up. And what does Jephthah do in his response? Who does he say give him, gave him the victory? The Lord, right? And God gave me the victory. Here, Jephthah's got a whole different perspective than they do. Theirs is about raising their name up and, and them being part of the victory. But instead, Jephthah, on the other hand, is saying, God gave me the victory. He keeps pointing everything back to God. As we get victories in our life, you know where those victories are supposed to point. They're supposed to point towards God. We're not supposed to, to revel in it. We're not supposed to take any credit for it. We're just supposed to say, this is God, and God got the victory. Therefore, he gets the credit. If you don't have that mentality, what's going to well up inside of you? Pride, right? Pride's going to well up inside of you. And, and as pride wells up inside of you, it continues to grow. See, pride is one of those things that it starts out small, and then it grows, and it grows, and grows. Do we, you, you know any addictions that are like that? They start out small, and you never intended for them to grow and grow and grow, but they just do. Pride is the same way. It's an addiction. It starts out here, and it's teeny tiny, and it just grows and grows and grows. And before you know it, you're an Ephraimite, and you're jealous of somebody that's family that's got a victory, and God was on their side. And that's where the Ephraimites are right now. And the whole time Jephthah's pointing back to God, he says, so why now have you come to fight me? Now the, the, what's going to happen is the pride's going to be exposed even more. The people of Ephraim responded, you men of Gilead are nothing more than fugitives for Ephraim and Manasseh. So Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and attacked the men of Ephraim and defeated them. What does he say? What are the, what are the Ephraimites, what, how do they respond? See, you're nothing but a bunch of lowlifes. You're, not, you're not, nothing but a bunch of fugitives. You, you're, you're the least of the least, and you're not any good. You're not worth a dime. Therefore, it's obvious that their pride is welling up, right? Isn't that the first thing the prideful person does is they kind of point and try to crush down other people? You ever seen anybody that does that? The first thing they want to do is to, to put somebody else down. That way they, they are themselves lifted up. And, and what, what a terrible way that the jealousy infiltrates, man, when you see that, that people are just talking negative, uh, just talking bad about somebody else and putting them down and maybe telling lies about them. Maybe not necessarily always telling lies, but maybe not a whole truth. And it just continues to diminish and diminish and diminish is their way of building themselves up is to put everybody else down. And that is exactly what's going on here. You're nothing but a bunch of lowlifes, the leftovers. You're the, the scum left over. And obviously, that's part of their pride issue, right? Part of their pride issue is that these are the nothings, and we're supposed to be the favorites. And here, they got to victory, and where are we in this picture? We're left out. We're supposed to be the favorites, man. We're, we're supposed to be the better ones. It turns out that, that God has used the least of these to make his glory known, which happens all the time, right? That's the message of the Bible so much is that God uses the least, the ordinary, the mundane, to, be, to exalt the name of Christ because the power of God is, is seen in and through them. And when the power of God is seen in and through them, what happens? Jealousy sets in. They're like, man... You got the victory, and you're a bunch of nothings. So Jephthah 
I know that we look at this and we go, man, this seems crazy. But, but what happens is Jephthah attacks them and shows them exactly who has the strength and who has the power. Because it says, and uh, uh, the men of Ephraim and defeated them. Jephthah captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And whenever a fugitive from Ephraim tried to go back across, the men of Gilead would challenge them. So they're trying to escape. They're trying to go back to their own homes. And what happens? Uh, the men of Gilead challenged them. Are you a member of Ephraim? They would ask. If the man said, no, I'm not, then he would say, tell, me, tell them to say shibboleth. Some of you may have heard this term before, shibboleth. It's kind of a, a, somebody that, that's trying to blend in when they really don't. He said, he said, now get them to say shibboleth because people from Ephraim cannot pronounce that word correctly. They've got an accent that prevents them from being able to say shibboleth. And that was the password. That was the code, if you will, to be able to get past the Jordan River, to get back across the Jordan River. They would take him and kill him at the shallow crossing of the Jordan. In all, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah judged Israel for six years when he died, was buried in the town, one of the towns of Gilead. So what happens here? He gives them a password. He gives them a password. The Ephraimites, as they're crossing back over the Jordan, you can imagine in the shallows there, the Gilead men are there, and they're, they're, they're trying to continue to see who's really one of them and who's not. And they got this word, and... It's shibboleth, shibboleth. And those that can say it, they're allowed to pass freely, but those who cannot because of their accent, because of the way they were taught to speak, they're obviously Ephraimites, and then they were taken and they were killed in the shallows of the Jordan River. Now, what does this say to us? What does this say to us? I'm going to show you a video in just a minute. And, and, and I think that this video kind of shows for us the real shibboleth. So I would like for you to, to take a moment, watch this video. It's about four minutes long, and then I'm going to speak to you for just a moment. Yeah. We're all set. What am I doing? Pardoning a turkey. Okay. Mr. President? Excellent. I think you'll like this. Mr. Meister, Meridian 3000 series, one-piece forged blade, riveted palm handle. Terrific. I don't like the handles. Okay. Mr. President, how's it going? Sir, we've taken a couple dozen meetings in the last two days. You met with Chinese embassy officials? Last night, they say... Christians aren't persecuted in China. Since they're not oppressed, they don't qualify for refugee status. Under U.S. or U.N. conditions, yeah. They also make the point that they broke Chinese law when they left the country illegally and should be sent back to their country of origin. It's a fair point. The INS agents also feel it's not uncommon in this situation for refugees to... How do I put it? Feign faith. Yeah, they'll be coached. So how do you tell the difference between... You guys know what a shibboleth is? It's a catchphrase, isn't it? A cliché. comes from the Bible. Then said now unto him, Say now shibboleth, and he said sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. It was a password, a way the army used to distinguish true Israelites from impostors sent across the River Jordan by the enemy. Sir, I'm having one of the Chinese refugees flown here. I'll meet with him tonight. Mr. President, I can't, you know, indefinitely with the turkey. Yeah. Excuse me, Mr. President, what are you going to ask the Chinese refugee? I'm going to ask him to say shibboleth. 
Uh, Mr. President? Is he here? Yes, sir. Good. Did we get an interpreter? He speaks English. He's a chemistry professor. Yeah? There was a while there I wanted to be a chemistry professor. What happened? I never actually studied chemistry. A lot of these college chemistry departments are really demanding that way. Yeah. Mr. President. Jen Wei? Yes, sir. I'm Jed Bartlett. This is Leo McGarry. How do you do? Thank you for coming all this way. Yes, sir. Fellas, would you mind waiting outside? Certainly, sir. Would you care to sit down? Perfectly all right. Some sandwiches here. If you get hungry, you should feel free to eat as much as you please. Yes, sir. There are questions as to the veracity of your claim to asylum. Yes, sir. How did you become a Christian? I began attending a house church with my wife in Fujian. Eventually, I was baptized. How do you practice? We share Bibles. We don't have enough. We sing hymns. We hear sermons. We recite the Lord's Prayer. We are charitable. Who's the head of your church? The head of our parish is an 84-year-old man named Wen Ling. He's been beaten and imprisoned many times. The head of our church is Jesus Christ. Can you name any of Jesus' apostles? If you can't, that's okay. I usually can't remember the names of my kids, or for that matter. Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and James. Mr. President, Christianity is not demonstrated through a recitation of facts. You're seeking evidence of faith, a wholehearted acceptance of God's promise of a better world. For we hold that man is justified by faith alone, is what St. Paul said. Justified by faith alone. Faith is the true... Uh, I'm trying to... Shibboleth. Faith is the true shibboleth. Yes, it is. And you, sir, just said the magic word in more ways than one. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Mr. President. Faith is the true shibboleth. Some of us are wanting one day that when we pass from this life to the next, we're wanting to enter into the promised land. We're wanting to go home. You know what would be your shibboleth? Your faith. You won't be able to disguise it. You won't be able to hide it. It'll be how you talk. It'll be the, the pronunciation, if you will, of your life. You won't be able to hide it from God and pretend like it's something that it's not. Your shibboleth, your password is going to be your faith. And my question to you today is, what is your faith like? Is it real? Is it true? Is it genuine? Are you truly one of God's? Do you belong to Him? Are you one of the people of God? Or are you somebody that's been faking it, trying to act like your faith is something that it's not? 
what does your faith look like? If it's not what it needs to be, Christ is the answer. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He died for the church. He died for you. He died so that you could pass over that river one day. And you could come into the promised land of God. This promise of a different world. This promise of a better world. A better place. It's all based on your faith. It's all based on your faith. So what's the condition of your faith today? What does it look like? Father, thank you, God, for this truth. Thank you for the example of Jephthah. Thank you for the example of him being obedient to God, even, even to the point of putting his life on the line. God, I pray that we as Christ followers, God, that we, we would, we'd be willing to put our lives on the line for the reality of who you are as we surrender our whole lives to you, as we die to ourselves, God, so that you might live within us, that we might be a new creation in Christ Jesus. I pray that we have fully counted the cost of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And if we have truly counted that cost, we understand that, God, we have got to go forward and we've got to do what you called us to do, even if it means our own death. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that we'd be that kind of people. I pray that we would not be people continue to walk around and our faith not be true. I pray that right now you would just convict, convict hearts, convict minds. Lord, I pray that you would draw your people unto you. God, whatever place people are in right now, maybe they're in a place of weak faith. I pray that you would strengthen their faith. Maybe they're in a place where they've never put their true faith in you. God, I pray that today you would rescue them. You'd rescue them from their sin and from themselves so that they might one day, they might one day be face to face with you. time we have to respond to you. I pray that you're glorified now as we respond. In the name of Jesus, our King, I do pray. Amen.